Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, cardio nerds. This is Amit Coyle. On behalf of all of us, welcome to a new academic year. Many of us are transitioning into new roles of training and leadership. We thought this would be the perfect time to learn about mastering the art of patient care with master clinician, master scientist, master educator, Dr. Michelle Kittleson. Join the Cardi Nerds interns as they discuss key practical pearls from Dr. Kittleson's book, Mastering the Art of Patient Care. Big thanks to Dr. Gurleen Kaur, the director of the Cardi Nerds internship and star medicine resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital for planning and leading this episode. And now, let's get nerdy. Welcome, Cardio Nerds. This is Gurleen Kaur, resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital and director of the Cardio Nerds Internship. I'm so excited to be here with Cardio Nerds Academy interns, Dr. Akiva Rosenzweig, the intern at the Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Chelsea Twenebaugh, the intern at Stony Brook University, student Dr. Shivani Reddy, rising fourth-year medical student at Western Michigan University, student Dr. Diane Maskett, rising fourth-year medical student at Rowan, and student Dr. Tina Reddy, rising fourth-year medical student at Tulane. We are so excited to have Dr. Michelle Kittleson here with us today to talk about mastering the art of patient care. Dr. Kittleson is the Director of Education in Heart Failure and Transplantation, Director of Heart Failure Research, and Professor of Medicine at the Smith Heart Institute at Cedars-Sinai. She completed medical school at Yale, internal medicine residency at the Brigham, and cardiology fellowship at Hopkins, where she also received a PhD in clinical investigation. Dr. Kittleson is well known for her collection of tips for doctors, shared on Twitter as hashtag KittlesonRolls. And most recently, she's also the author of the book, Mastering the Art of Patient Care, which compiles all her pearls of wisdom and provides a roadmap for every stage of training and career. And personally, having read through her book, I've just learned so much, and I'm so excited to have her with us on CardioNerds. Welcome, Dr. Kittleson. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be here. Your book is really full of tips and tricks for every stage of training, and it has practical pieces of advice on how to become fluent in medicine and build a medical foundation, but also how to hone our clinical judgment, as well as establish medical style through habits and leadership. All of these things are really important as we transition through different roles in our careers as well. And there's really so much that we can talk about, but we'll try to delve deeper into a few of the themes that are highlighted in the book. And I'll turn it over to Akiva to get us started. Thanks so much, Gurleen. As we speak, we are rapidly approaching July 1st, a time of big transitions in the medical field. As you mentioned in the book, Dr. Kittleson, transitioning into leadership roles, such as a second-year resident, first-year fellow, or first-year attending, can be more intimidating and overwhelming than even the initial transition into intern year, as those roles require more responsibility. I remember vividly doing an away acting internship in July and being floored by the masterful job the newly minted senior resident had done in making treatment decisions, but also in guiding and supporting the intern and myself to ensure that we were at our best on rounds. It was both so impressive and personally overwhelming as I thought of being in the same position in just a couple of years and how I would be able to manage as a second year resident. You provide such great insight into these transitions and as most of our audience have gone through or will go through these transitions, Can you share some of your thoughts on how to approach these time periods? Absolutely. I love that question. I think one of the most scary things about these transitions is that you have to have a new skill set. It's not just about understanding the science. It's about translating that science into not only taking care of patients, but teaching other people 
how to take care of patients. So the overarching theme of my advice on how you approach these transitions is to recognize that number one, you are not special. Everyone feels that way and everyone survives. And number two, we don't worry, we make a plan. So for the resident, when I was facing that transition to a second year resident, my plan was envisioning what rounds would look like and choosing a rounding structure with good boundaries and expectations to lessen the uncertainty for my interns and prepare, prepare, prepare in advance. I wish I was one of those people that could think about cool pearls off the top of my head, but I'm not. And I recognize that. And I would do my own pre-rounding as a second-year resident, identifying a high-yield pearl on one or two patients. As a fellow, the stakes are a little bit higher. You're expected to know a little bit more. But again, you are not unique. You must not beat yourself up for your lack of knowledge and experience, but recognize knowing who and when to ask for help. I think being an attending physician is the culmination of a bit of that uncertainty and fear as the stakes get ever higher. But you have to recognize that experience isn't a threshold, it's a gradation. You're continually gaining that experience and you rely again on your trusted colleagues and mentors as you learn and grow. So that's really my best pearls for how you approach the new skill sets of these transitions. Thank you so much, Dr. Kittleson. I think the takeaway for me is that preparation is so important and we have to rely on our preparation and not just try to be the best and think that we need to be the best, but to rely on preparation, but also to rely on others. And I think that's really what I gained from your answer. Thank you. Thank you very much for that great discussion there kind of about these transitions. So Dr. Kittleson, as we talk about these different transition points in our careers, one thing that is important, no matter the type of transition or the part of our career we are in, is mentorship, which is also a topic that you highlight several times in the book and one of the topics that I really enjoyed reading the most about. In the preface, you write, the art of patient care is an apprenticeship guided by the wisdom of mentors. Later on, you also mention that one of the strongest tools to combat burnout is to forge connections with mentors who help sustain a sense of purpose. What are your tips for getting started with building a network of mentors? Well, you know, I think that's such a great question. And when I was in training, I felt unnecessarily intimidated by those more senior to me. And I realize now, standing on the other side of the equation, how unnecessary that feeling was. Because as physicians, we all have been through that period of apprenticeship, and it's a joy to share our wisdom with others. So how do you find a mentor? For me, it's as simple as saying, step one, find a role model. Defined as, who do you want to be like when you grow up? And when you identify someone, whether it is on rounds or when they give a talk or when you hear about their research and you say, I want to be like that, you go up to that person and say, can I set up a meeting with you or email them in order to learn more about your journey? And one of two things will happen. They will be open to the opportunity or they won't. No harm done. If they're not open, they wouldn't have made a good mentor anyway. And then when you have that interaction, I find the most useful question that I learned the most from is, how did you end up where you are? And everyone likes to talk about themselves and you can learn so much from everyone's personal journey. So find someone you wanna be like when you grow up, ask them how they got to where they are, 
and then recognize that a mentor it's not a one-time deal. You will have a cabinet of mentors, a web of mentors. You'll have a work-life balance mentor and a clinical mentor and a research mentor. You you know how like in a family you go to mom when you want to know or dad when you want to yes? You're going to have mentors like that too. You're going to have your mentor that is more clinically conservative and one that's more clinically moderate. And you'll be able to judge and craft your style by the mentors you surround yourself with. They'll be changing throughout your career. Some will stay with you for decades. Some will be fleeting for a few months. But just find those people whose habits and experiences intrigue you and ask them how they got there. Thank you so much, Dr. Kittleson, for reminding us to really go out there and find people who inspire us and remember that we can ask them how they got where they are. So speaking about being inspired by someone, could I set up a meeting with you, Dr. Kittleson? <laughs> yes, you know, I like to say there's nothing I love more than giving unsolicited free advice. So yes, as one knows if they follow me on Twitter. So I would be absolutely delighted to have you email me to set up a meeting. Well, thank you very much. There will be an email in your inbox soon. And I will respond to it right away because emails in your inbox are like dirty dishes and they shouldn't sit there overnight. Agreed. <laughs> thank you. I love this live mentorship setup. Mentorship is very important. I think I learned the importance of mentorship, especially during fourth year when transitioning from fourth year into residency. So this topic is very close to me. It's one of the reasons why I became a part of the Cardio Nerds. So speaking of that, mentorship is important in so many levels. And in the book, you discuss that the best antidote to this fear is to talk over cases that keep you up at night with a trusted colleague or a mentor. I know during my clinical years, there were patients I would take home with me and extensively think about. Even the patients that would end up changing hospitals, I would still try to follow up and come up with tests I think we should have done or think about things my team and I may have missed. I guess a lot of it stems from, if this patient was my family member, will I be satisfied with the effort that I put in? So, Dr. Kittleson, after you have done your appropriate and comprehensive assessment, and you arrive at a place of acceptance, do you have moments where you find yourself backtracking and analyzing the case again? And what are your suggestions for dealing with this? I think this Monday morning quarterbacking, and I hope I've used that phrase right, because I don't know anything about sports, but you know that, that rehashing of a cases is what makes us great clinicians. It is that caring about doing the best by your patient that makes us the best, but also can be very emotionally draining. So what's my approach? Number one, you'll find as you go on, there'll be fewer and fewer cases that keep you up at night. But with every case, you have to ask yourself, you know, is my subconscious trying to tell me something? And you have to lean into that discomfort and you have to pinpoint what exactly is making you feel uncomfortable. Sometimes it's going to be a medical issue. I just don't understand if there is a unifying diagnosis between their palpable purpura and their thrombocytopenia. Or maybe it's something more emotional. I just feel like I did not get through to this patient when I tried to explain why they need test X and they don't need test Y. So you have to lean in to pinpoint what was it that is making it is keeping you up at night. And then when you've identified the issue, whether it is medical and or emotional, you have to figure out what are you going to do about it? Sometimes it's circling back to the patient. And I've done this before where I'll call them the next day and say, 
I've given your case more thought and I think we need to do X. Sometimes it's I run it through a trusted mentor and colleague and say, what am I missing? What doesn't feel right here? And then I'll give the patient a call and say, I've discussed your case with my colleagues and I think we should do Y. But embrace that feeling, but don't embrace it in isolation. Like I say, we don't worry, we make a plan. So if you find yourself worrying, you have to figure out exactly what you're worrying about and then make a plan either on your own or with a trusted mentor and colleague to resolve the issue. Thank you so much for that insight. I think the lesson of leaning into discomfort is really important and admitting that, you know, you could seek help for cases like this and also involving the patient. I think that was very powerful and making sure, you know, they're involved in their point of care. So thank you for that advice. On a similar note to dealing with doubt, it can be challenging to deal with mistakes as it is often not talked about publicly in medicine. In the preface to your book, you describe the origin story that culminated in mastering the art of patient care. One of the major themes mentioned was the idea of learning from mistakes, and ideally the mistakes of those who have preceded you. You noted the quote of Eleanor Roosevelt, learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them all yourself. As important as it is to learn from yours and others' mistakes, in the book, you talk about the importance of remembering your victories as well. Can you talk about how best to balance learning from mistakes and remembering our victories? And do you think there's a role for teachers and mentors to openly share their mistakes to help normalize this for their learners? So my short answer is yes. But when have I ever stopped at the short answer? (laughs) I have much more to say. Absolutely. I believe the greatest lessons we learn are from our mistakes and the ones that are shared with us. And I think as a trainee, when my mentors would tell me about a time they made the wrong decision, so they learned to make the right decision, it was empowering and comforting that, you know, we are all in this together. This is a shared experience of crossing the bridge from inexperience to experience. But I think it does weigh on us heavily emotionally when a bad outcome happens. And I have a stepwise approach to dealing, processing a bad outcome. So, you know, patients, family members, loved ones, the way I look at it, have the luxury of experiencing grief. But as physicians, I think we have to take that grief and turn it into something constructive. So when there is a bad outcome, the first thing you must do is dissect it to separate fault from fluke. Sometimes your decision was the proximal cause to a bad outcome, and sometimes it was just bad luck. And it is so important that you do not change your practices based on bad luck. You don't doctor by anecdote. If a patient suffers a near cardiac arrest in the cardiac catheterization lap after administration of sedation, it doesn't mean that no patient ever gets sedation again. If that patient happened to have severe pulmonary hypertension, critical aortic stenosis, and triple vessel disease, you have to figure out what's fault and what's fluke. Second step, if you determine that it is fault, then it is you talk it over with your trusted mentors and colleagues. This is a big theme to process and move on. And if it's fluke, again, you take a deep breath and go on to the next step, which is, was this bad outcome unforeseen or was it expected? I like to say that obstetricians are the heroes of medicine because they deal with 99% miracle and 1% horrific disaster. Their whole lives are really unforeseen disasters that they prevent. But for all of us as clinicians, we have to do our best to adequately prepare the patient, the family, and by extension, ourselves 
And a lot of experience comes from that ability to best predict the future and prepare everyone for a potential bad outcome. And then if you're at peace, that you did all you could medically, you did all you could to prevent and prepare the family, then you have to accept that control is an illusion and accept that we have to preserve our stamina for the tragedies ahead. So I think that stepwise processing of bad outcomes for clinicians allows us to take an overwhelming tragedy and distill it into the lessons we can take away to help our future patients and preserve our stamina for the road ahead. But as you noted, we also have to savor our victories. We have to bask in those wonderful saves. There's a doctor out there who calls it his sunshine folder. And I love that term where you have either a mental file, mine is mental, or whether you have something written down somewhere or an email folder with lovely kind emails people have sent you or the kind letters patients send you in the mail, where you hold on to those wonderful saves because with every patient you try your hardest and with every patient there won't be a perfect ending. But by savoring your victories, you again can preserve your emotional stamina to withstand whatever challenges you'll face in the future. Wow. Thank you so much for that thoughtful response, Dr. Kittleson. I know personally, it can be easier to perseverate on mistakes I've made rather than celebrate the victories. And hearing from mentors and leaders, those that are farther into their career and have had a lot of experience like yourself, experiencing similar feelings can be very reassuring. I think this helps foster an environment where learners can feel comfortable making mistakes and see those mistakes as an opportunity for growth rather than a failure. A hundred percent. And it all comes back to those themes of mentorship, having a trusted mentor or colleague where you can debrief and process in a safe space is so critical to processing and moving forward. A hundred percent. Can I also send you an email after this, Dr. Kittleson? And it will be answered right away. Yes. (laughs) Amazing. One skill that we can learn both from our mentors as well as our own prior experiences is how to deliver bad news. Dr. Kittleson, your book has a very practical section about delivering bad news, and I'm so thankful for it. On my surgery rotation, my very first experience observing a trauma call down and emergent trauma surgery was rather harrowing. My patient was a 12-year-old who was struck by a car while crossing the street, and he had just turned 12 on that day. This was just such a gut-wrenching story, and thankfully, I, as a student, was not tasked with giving difficult news to this family, but nonetheless, the mere thought of most probably needing to do so in the future is very much unsettling. So I love how you share a simple system with us that hopefully will make this task less anxiety-provoking. So for all our cardio nerds, could you please share your six-step method to delivering bad news? Absolutely. And I think it's so important to remember that we cannot control tragedies, but we have to do our best by the patient and their family in the face of tragedy. And as most things, it really begins with preparation. I had a mentor who once told me, you don't just drop the bomb, you start the cleanup. So if you are faced with a patient for whom you have to deliver a life-threatening diagnosis, it is your job to not only deliver the diagnosis, but to have a sense of what the next steps in the plan are. So for example, as a heart transplant cardiologist, I've been faced on multiple occasions with patients who are undergoing heart transplant evaluations, and we may uncover a 
life-threatening condition. And after that condition, they are no longer eligible for heart transplantation. For example, a newly diagnosed lung cancer. That is a devastating news for a patient and their family to receive when they're already facing end-stage heart failure. And in that situation, it is my job, even though I'm the cardiologist, to not just drop the bomb. No, the CT scan I ordered for you for your heart transplant evaluation shows a mass that's probably cancer. It's my job to figure out the concrete next step. So whether it is calling my favorite oncologist and saying, listen, I want to get this guy in to see you. I'm going to deliver the news. I'm going to have my assistant get a date and time for an appointment, but what can he expect? What are you going to tell him? Is it going to be more imaging, et cetera? So you have a rough idea of what you can tell the patient to prepare them. The other thing that I think is so important when you're delivering bad news is to remember there's this tendency to want to be kind and kind means not to say anything to make someone sad, but we have to always call out the elephant in the room. And I guarantee it that even if you skirt around the elephant, well, there's this shadow in your lung and we're not sure what it is. We need further tests. Guaranteed, the patient is thinking cancer. You might not say cancer. They're thinking cancer. Cancer is the elephant in the room. Call out the elephant in the room. Offer an honest differential diagnosis. So the preparation includes you will deliver the bad news. You will deliver it honestly, as well as the best and worst case scenarios as you have them. The second thing I think is so important is letting the news register. You know, when you're the person delivering bad news to a patient, their life forevermore will be divided into before they knew and after they know. And some of them will remember you forever in that terrible moment. And some of them will just hear white noise and very little of what you say. In the best possible scenario, there will be family there to hear it with them, more sets of eyes and ears. But you say things kind of in more ways than one. We see a shadow in your lung. Yes, there is a mass there. We think it might be cancer. I know this is a shock. And you kind of repeat yourself going back and forth over this information as you feel out the body language of the patient and their family. And some patients will skip you forward. Okay, great. Got their notepad out. What's the next step, doc? Others will be frozen in shock, and you'll see when they seem ready to process next steps. You allow the patient and their family to set the pace of the discussion. And then when you move on to the plan, it is, I think, very useful to give the patient and their family a constructive next step. So I love to have, in a perfect world, the date and time of the appointment with the oncologist or the phone number for the oncologist, the name of the oncologist. I've spoken to the oncologist. Something for them to grasp onto, not they get off the phone with me and it's a black hole what comes next. So you move on from the bad news to the start of the plan, the next steps. And whenever I speak to a patient and a family and I give them bad news, I always end with a promise. The promise is not everything's going to be okay because that's the worst promise you can ever give anyone because it is not true. The promise I give patients is I promise you that although we have more questions than answers right now, we will make a plan to get the answers and that I promise you that I will be honest with you, whatever the news happens to be, whether good or bad. And then finally, because much of what you say will be lost in the white noise of the emotional trauma of the news you've given the patient, it is so important to circle back. If they're an inpatient, you circle back within a few hours. If they're an outpatient, you circle back within the next day or so, but always closing that loop, keeping the lines of communication open and remembering the preparation, calling out the elephant in the room, letting the patient set the pace, 
and making them that promise that you will be with them to get the answers that they need to the most important questions moving forward. Thank you so much, Dr. Kittleson, for that incredible breakdown. You know, this is just such a great framework to have as a reference as we go about preparing for those difficult conversations that we you know, need to be having with our patients and their families. Wonderful. Thank you. Dr. Kittleson, just to transition a bit, I really enjoyed the section in which you talked about picking your battles because you emphasize medicine as a team sport. You mentioned how in certain instances, you will not challenge medication treatments given by other experts in the medical field, but at other times you will. Dr. Kittleson, can you further explain your approach to picking battles? Furthermore, how to discern when and when not are the appropriate times to speak up or to take a back seat? Yes, absolutely. Medicine, as you said, is absolutely a team sport, and it will only become more and more of a team sport as the knowledge base continues to grow and it becomes ever more specialized. And in order to work together, the reason I feel it is so important to pick your battles is when you speak, you want to be heard. You want people to realize that you speak when you have something important to say, and you want to practice within your scope of practice while respecting the scope of others' expertise. So for example, say I am rounding in the cardiothoracic surgery intensive care unit on a patient who just had a heart transplant, and they're managed by me, the transplant cardiologist, the cardiothoracic surgeon, and the intensivist. And the intensivist and the cardiothoracic surgeon and I all might have different views on the management of vasoactive agents in the first 24 hours after heart transplantation. I might say, wean that epinephrine right away. The surgeon might say, you know what, I really like a little nitro and then a little epi at the same time. And the intensivist might say, you know what, I want to put some vaso on board and let's throw in some isoproteranol. Now, my cardiologist heart might weep a little bit at the inelegance of some of those other regimens when I think about it on a pathophysiological basis, but are they truly wrong? And that's really the key. You have to first ask yourself, is this negotiable or not negotiable? Am I irritated or is there an unsafe practice happening? And so when it comes to if the patient's perfusing appropriately without unnecessary arrhythmias, then whatever they're on, the right answer is what works. On the other hand, if the patient has an undetectable tacrolimus level on post-op day four, and I need to aggressively ramp up that dose, I will have a very strong opinion on how we dose the next day's tacrolimus because I know that it is critical to get that level up to prevent rejection and tacrolimus is my jam, not theirs. So I think by learning how to work together, negotiable, not negotiable, irritating or unsafe, you will be able to work as part of a team. And I think these lessons are also extraordinarily helpful when you are doing those transitions we talked about. Like when you're becoming a second year resident or a first year fellow or a first year attending, when you're in charge on people more junior to you and you don't want to micromanage and your heart tells you you just want to give Lasix 80 IVBID, but your intern wants to give 60 IVBID, you must ask yourself, is this negotiable or not? Is it irritating or unsafe in their practice? They want to withhold anticoagulation for someone with two mechanical valves and a low EF? Okay, maybe that's not negotiable. Maybe that's unsafe. Or is it minutia of Lasix dosing? And the other, just to extend that a little further, say in either of these scenarios, whether I'm bargaining with my colleagues in the CT surgery ICU or I'm bargaining with my trainees on rounds, I might say, 
you're doing it your way. That might not be my way. So let's make a contingency plan. If X goal is not met in Y time, you will do Z. And for a trainee, I think that contingency plan is extraordinarily helpful. They get the ownership of trying their way, but they also have to make a plan if their way isn't working, what are they going to do next? Thank you so much, Dr. Kittleson. You know, as someone like myself who is generally non-confrontational, I think part of the reason for that is not knowing when to draw the line and which battles to choose. So I think your exquisite advice of the ability to distinguish between what's negotiable and what's non-negotiable, it's so important to have that confidence to be able to confront when it's necessary and not to when it's not necessary. And also the importance of having that contingency plan also can further give me that confidence to be able to pick and choose those battles. Let me give you a tip there, because I think you said something very important. It's hard to be assertive. I agree with you. I also felt exactly the same way. But we must design by intention. Our intention is optimal patient care. So whenever you're phrasing something and you're concerned about sounding assertive, bring it back to optimal patient care. You know, you go up to the CT surgery intensivist and say, I am concerned about the mix of epinephrine and nitroglycerin on this patient because as we can see, upping the dose of epinephrine is causing some non-sustained VT and I am concerned that that's going to lead to a problem with the safety of this patient's stability. So perhaps if we ramp down the nitro, they'll need less epi. So you see, you can phrase in such a way, of, it's not I want what I want when I want it. I am concerned about the patient and thus I'm making this recommendation. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Hilson. I really appreciate that. Also, taking the ego out of it helps things a lot. Right. Because there's no place for ego. It's not about yourself at all. Exactly. We touched a little bit about this in the discussion we just had right now, but I would like to talk a little bit more about the section from the book that is from chapter 11 titled Being a Woman in Medicine. And I will say that, you know, this is a section that has so many amazing pearls of wisdom that are equally applicable to men in the field as well. So it is definitely a must read for everyone along with the rest of the book. So in the section that's named Claim Your Role, there was a particular anecdote that you had shared that really resonated with me. And having gone through a whole year of clinical rotations as a third year medical student, you know, I often received feedback that I need to be more confident, despite putting forth my evidence-based plans with a sense of clarity of thought and conviction. And as time went on, I realized that the perception of me being unconfident largely stemmed from my communication style that consisted of phrasing plan components as questions. Dr. Kittleson, you had a similar approach as an intern. Could you share that anecdote from your time in the medical ICU, as well as your biggest takeaway from that experience? Yes, absolutely. I have to say, before I even get to that anecdote, I think you should not be beating yourself up about the feedback that you need to be more confident. Listen, if there's any time to not be confident, it's okay when you're an MS3. I think it's far better than getting the feedback that you're too confident. Overconfidence would be much harder to course correct. So kudos on being appropriately in that learning mode of learning and growing. I received similar feedback and it all ends up okay. So let me tell you the story about when I was an intern. So I remember when I was an intern in the ICU, I'd go up to a nurse and I'd give them my plan for a patient and they would like look up and to the left, like over my shoulder to my resident standing behind me. And if my resident was nodding in affirmation, they'd do what I said. 
And that really irritated me because as you said, I knew what I was doing, but I wasn't getting the respect. And then I saw this surgical intern. She was an intern just like me, a surgical intern though. And she was small like me and young looking like me, but she would walk into the unit and do a consult and the nurses would listen to whatever she said. Her resident wasn't trailing behind her and nodding. And I said, what's going on here? So I would basically surreptitiously stalk and eavesdrop her. I was trying to learn from you know her experience experience. And I found something very interesting. When the nurses would ask her a question or when she would give the nurses her plan, she was unfailingly polite, but she spoke in a monotone. It wasn't, we're going to order blood cultures on this patient. It was, the patient has a fever. Could you please check blood cultures? And it was that simple, simple change from an upward inflection to a monotone, a polite monotone that got her the respect that I was missing. And that to me was a huge takeaway because I realized there's many things I could not change. I could not change being a very young appearing, diminutive Indian woman running around the unit as an intern. But I could change how I presented myself. And so by changing those variables, it really made a difference in how I was perceived during my time as a trainee. Thank you so much for sharing this personal story with us, Dr. Kittleson. And also thank you for reassuring us that things will be okay. It's so important you know, for us to hear that because it is very easy for us to, as medical students, fixate on certain aspects as we're going about our training. And I just want to say, you know, we're so lucky to be able to learn from your experiences as well as have your advice to look at as reference, you know, as we grow in our careers and learn to become more confident and embrace our role and our skill set to the highest level possible. You know, I think the bottom line is everyone who is in medical school, medical school might be one of the hardest things you've done. But it's not the hardest. We've all had challenges in our lives, whether personal or professional or academic or educational. Medical school is but one of them. If you think about all those other challenges you have managed to overcome, other things you have mastered, medicine will just be another step on that list. With initiative and aptitude and the help of your mentors and books like this, you know, these things are possible. It will happen. So I will also be pulling from the chapter being a woman in medicine. I feel like that chapter alone has so much to unpack. Regarding my question, a lot of us focus on the academic or the professional side of medicine and not so much the personal side of medicine. But I think what happens in our personal lives affects how we perform in our professional lives as well. In the section on being a woman in medicine, you talk about being a parent in medicine. As we know, many people enter the field of medicine as parents already or become parents at some point during their training or career. You mentioned being a physician is hard and being a parent is also hard. Women especially may think about this a lot, especially those who have to take leave for childbirth and think about the implications of doing that. Both men and women have to think about how to achieve the balance of being a good doctor and a good parent. Well, Dr. Kilson, can you give us insight into your experience of becoming a parent as faculty? And can you discuss your most poignant experiences and the factors that help you get through the challenges of serving both roles and knowing there is room to be great in both roles? Absolutely. You know, as you quoted from my book, (laughs) being a physician is hard. Being a parent is hard, but nothing, none of this is insurmountable. And I like to think of when's the right time to have kids is when you want to have kids. And mother nature is often not going to cooperate with your timeline anyway. One mentor once posted to me like, you know how you, when you think about an LP, you should do an LP. Well, if you think it's time to have kids, it's probably time to have kids. 
And then I had another mentor who told me, you need two of these three criteria to successfully manage being a physician and a parent. You need a supportive partner, family to help, and or dependable and flexible paid childcare. And if you have at least two out of those three, you will make it work. But one thing, and I have three beautiful, perfect children, even more beautiful and perfect when they're fast asleep, hermetically sealed in their sleeping chambers, but there will be days when you feel like you can't do it. So I'm going to tell you my three greatest fears when I had children and how I subsequently realized that they were unfounded. So unfounded fear number one, after you have kids, you won't remember how to be a good doctor. And actually, this is a great story that comes from my mom, actually, who is a retired pathologist. And when I was born, she, in fact, had quite a harrowing delivery, eclampsia, not just pre, the actual eclampsia, all all kinds of excitement. And when she came back to work, she was convinced that her brain had been damaged and she could not read slides anymore. And her boss and mentor gave her a set of slides to read. And she like aced all of them. And he said, I gave you really tough slides. I knew all the answers. I just wanted you to show yourself that you were fine. And I'm like, whoa, what a great life lesson. Her boss was her mentor. He, without her even asking, he intuited what she needed. There's another good lesson on how to be a good mentor. And and that sort of fear, your muscle memory will come back. You will still remember how to be a doctor. Think about all the women who've gone before you. Find that mentor out there, your work-life balance mentor, your parent mentor. They will offer you the support to get you through it. You just have to do it. Don't think about it. Just do it. You will be able to do it. Second unfounded fear I had, my baby will forget me. My baby won't love me. They'll love my husband more. They'll love the nanny more. They won't love me the most. Because why else do we have kids? We want, you know, they want to love us the most. I don't have teenagers yet, so I still feel that way. And that is not true. We must remember that at birth, babies are just blobs, right? They want to be swaddled. They want to be fed. They want to sleep. There's not a lot of give and take in those early days. So really, your baby will not forget you. Your baby will always love you. And I have to say, it was extraordinary to me that with each of my three children, I probably spent the least time with them compared with my husband or our nanny. And yet they just loved me. They loved the nanny. They loved my husband. They mean they loved anyone less. There's just lots of love to give. Your baby will not forget you. Third unfounded fear. You'll never, quote, get it together. <laughs> Your life will never be manageable again. And life will ebb and flow. And my best advice for that is to remember that life happens in stages. A few years ago, I did this graph to illustrate this fact where I plotted my PubMed citations by year and I put extra line graphs in there whether I was first or senior author. And it was really quite amazing the pattern that came out where there's a steady rise through fellowship and then these three cliffs where there were three years where my productivity plummeted and slowly recovered, plummeted, slowly recovered and plummeted. Those three plummets were my three times when I was trying to keep an infant alive, trying to keep my patients alive and not caring about anything else. So really your priorities are right because they are yours. Comparison is the thief of joy. You should not be, what's the medical equivalent of envy scrolling on social media? I don't know, PubMed scrolling. You shouldn't be looking at all your co-colleagues' PubMed citations and comparing them to yours. You will get to where you need to get, maybe not all at once. So I think the key is to remember your priorities, which at some point, maybe to keep your patients alive and your kids alive. 
and you may say no to all the other wonderful extras and that life will grow and you will have times when you may reinvent yourself and rediscover old passions or new ones for research, leadership, administration, education, and get there. So don't judge yourself harshly and remember that the priorities of optimal patient care and raising your family are wonderful ones. Dr. Kittleson, thank you so much for sharing those words of advice. You know, as a parent with a growing family, we recently were just blessed with our third a month ago. I've definitely, throughout medical school, have had these fears. Although, as a man, I don't have the fear of taking leave for childbirth and forgetting everything when I come back. But all those other fears I definitely have had in terms of my kids not loving me because I haven't been around or being able to get it together. And your words of advice about understanding that there are ebbs and flows, there are peaks and valleys, it's really important. And I really appreciate it. I think that's kind of the mindset I've had that sometimes I'll be there more for my kids and sometimes I'll be there more for for my patients. And eventually life goes on. So thank you so much. No, absolutely. I'll tell you another funny story about forgetting all of medicine. I had about, I think, a six-month period when I wasn't in the cath lab at all after maybe each one of my kids. Because, you know, at third trimester, it was too big for my lead to fit. I remember walking into the hospital one day with one of the high-volume interventional cardiologists. And I was just about, I think it was maybe like my first day back in the cath lab after, you know, six months away. And I was just trying to make myself feel better. And I said to him, What's the longest stretch you've ever had not doing a case in the cath lab? Kind of hoping he'd tell me some good period of time and then the ending of the story would be, everything's fine and you're going to be okay. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know, um, 11 days? <laughs> and I thought to myself, this was the wrong mentor to ask this question to. But the bottom line is, yes, you have years of experience. You have colleagues to rely on. You have muscle memory. You will be okay. Your kids will be okay. Your patients will be okay. Dr. Kittleson, thank you for teaching me and our amazing interns by virtue of your time in the hospital with hashtag Kittleson rules on social media and now this book. You regularly teach and inspire so many of us. And I think one question we'd all love to hear from you is what makes your heart flutter about helping learners master the art of patient care? You know, I have to tell you, it is such a joy. It is such a joy to experience that apprenticeship of medicine. When you see someone's eyes light up when they get it, whether it's, you know, hearing that S3 gallop or finally seeing, of course, the JVP is right there or understanding the why afterload reduction doesn't cause a drop in blood pressure when someone with HEFREC or their stroke volume will go up as their SVR goes down. There's just a joy. Or when you have a patient that you're delivering bad news to, and then you have your trainee go to the next patient and model your advice and do it themselves. You know, it just makes you feel so wonderful that this vocation of medicine, the art of not just the care of the patient, but the caring for the patient is being moved forward to the next generation. I love it so much. And I love to see other people love it and thrive to take great care of patients as well. I love that answer. And the enthusiasm you bring to cardiology as a field is just great. Your enthusiasm really shines and inspires. I've just been sitting back and soaking in all the pearls from your discussion with everyone. And there's just so many important themes in your book. And I wish we had time to talk about many of the other great points that you highlighted. But I think it really speaks to that everyone listening, no matter the stage of training, needs to go and read the book and learn from all your insights. 
One of the things I love about your hashtag Kittleson rules and also the book is how concise and practical it is. And well, I'll definitely have to re-listen to this episode to catch all the pearls of wisdom. I think if I had to distill this down to some key pearls or quotes from you that I'll definitely remember from this recording, I think some key top five would be, we don't worry, we make a plan. Experience isn't a threshold. It's a continuum of gaining experience. Define role models and who you want to be like. For difficult conversations, feel out the body language of the room. When picking battles, ask yourself, is it negotiable or not? And when we're having trouble with being assertive, reflect on how it's all about patient care. I think lastly, it's life will ebb and flow. Life happens in stages. Thank you so much for sharing your story, successes, failures, and wisdom with all of us. And I also want to thank all of our CardioNerds interns who made this recording possible by planning and joining Diane, Tina, Akiva, Chelsea, and Shivani. Thank you all. There's no greater compliment than having someone quote me to me. So thank you so much. The book is available on the Springer website. Some may have it actually free of charge through an institutional subscription. If not, Amazon tends to sell out, but I think Springer is a great bet. And I'm just so grateful to how Cardio Nerds models the art of patient care in every educational activity you do. So kudos to you, Gerline, and the Cardio Nerds. Thank you so much for all the time and mentorship that you've spent on Cardio Nerds. Thank <laughs> you.